1: the Port of Virginia with my friend Stephen Edwards. How's it going, Stephen?
0: Great, Joe. We're having a good, good day. We just had a storm through here. It's all cleaned up, so we're in great shape.
1: Yeah, yeah. We've had that that horrible storm, Ian. We'll talk about that in a minute. But Stephen, please introduce yourself and your company. Where you're calling from today?
0: So, Joe, I'm sitting in Norfolk, Virginia. I'm the Chief Executive and Executive Director of the Port of Virginia. I've been in this role since January of 2021. So, coming up on will be two years at the end of this year good time to be in logistics it's been incredibly busy for the last two years before this and you know how did how did somebody who's you can tell i got a right right i was going to say
1: before you go to to that i want to ask a little i want to get questions about the british accent who does the port of virginia serve who's your who's your customers
0: so so who are our customers so our biggest port users you think about our biggest importers are retailers by far the biggest retail names that you would expect in 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 our nation are all coming through all coming through this port gateway and on the export side, the biggest commodities leaving are in the agricultural sector. So containerized agricultural goods is, is the biggest export coming through the port. So put, in, put into that, some manufacturing base uh, yeah, and, and, and a wider retail. So really anything that you or I buy or our families buy, yeah, chances are it's coming through here, maybe in some shape or form. And then likewise, yeah, anything that we're producing from on the agricultural side, on the in kind of on the eastern half of the country, that will, be, that will be exported through here as well so you know big white diverse set of port users and we can talk about individual commodity segments happy to do it and, and which ones are growing and which ones are which ones we're looking after
1: yeah i want to also understand i know that you you kind of you're like many people in logistics you kind of have the two customers you have the retailers who are getting it but also you have to, those those ships are all your customers too so we'll get back to that in a sec but Y- the English accent, I noticed that. <laughs> so uh, tell us a little bit about you. Where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? How did you end up in the top job down there in Northfolk?:
0: So very quickly, I grew up in South Wales in a city called Cardiff, which was a uh, historically a steel town. went to university in Birmingham in England. and then I joined the British shipping group called P&;O. Which which then became Anglo Dutch when it merged with P and O And as with a lot of people, so think about a Sealander in in somebody was Sealand or APL in North in the US, a and person from the UK, you get posted around the world. Fortunately enough, my, yeah, we were, my wife and I and our family, we've been posted to Singapore, Dubai, Rotterdam, and oh, we were wow. in the United. And we were in we happened to be in New Jersey at the time that it was time for where are our kids going to go to school. So we stopped. And have thoroughly enjoyed. You know, made a great decision to stay, become American citizens, and we've since then. I've been running Ports America, Iran, and then I moved to Global Container Terminals in Vancouver. A company called Traypack, which runs terminals on the West Coast, and then I got asked to come and look at this role, and you know, very happy to be here in Virginia, and delighted to be working here and doing, doing, you know, and this port can do great things for not only the Commonwealth of Virginia but also for the United States.
1: Excellent, excellent. So I get—I always ask people who are from somewhere else originally, what what surprised you when you moved to the United States? I know this isn't your first stop, but what surprised you? I know you probably saw stuff on the TV, but what surprised you when you moved here? And then also. Same question. What do you miss about Wales?
0: Okay, so what surprises you when you get to the United States is the first thing you you notice is that what you see in the movies is actually real. Right? <laughs> Some of it. People <laughs> people do drive down your neighborhood and throw newspapers onto your onto your front, you know, onto your front yard. That happens. You don't see that elsewhere in the world. The the other thing I think is a as a as a country to bring up a family, we don't know how good we've got it here. We really do. It is a great place to to bring up a family as a whole. And I think the you know, having grown up, you know, brought up brought our kids up in, in the Northeast is you really get that, you know, work hard, work hard ethic. So I think that there's a lot to love about what we do, what we do in America and, and a great, you know, the great scale of the country. So to me, it's the movies are real when you come and when you come and live here. And at some times you might say, I'm sitting in a movie set. And that's just great because I think for the rest of the world, we see all, we we watched. We watched all the movies and we're going, really? And now we can say yes, it's real. So that that would be the, the shame when it yeah you know, when it comes to Wales you know, for 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 both my wife and I, it's family. I mean, we've got we still got family in, in the UK. We're fortunate to have, have you know good family there. So we, we go back once or twice a year to to catch up with family. So really, that that's the difference. We've been overseas from the UK for forever, and, and now to us as American citizens, I guess the UK is overseas. So we we <laughs> that to us is is the main difference. Family and friends is the piece that you obviously that that you miss more than anything else.
1: I've I've always thought that's. What an incredibly difficult decision for people who leave their home country, regardless of where your home country is. It is your, where your f- friends and family are. It is the culture you're most used to, at least at that point. And, uh, you know, there's so many immigrants here. And I think what a tough decision. And usually it's you, the people did it for work and or for their kids. And uh, tough. I, I'm, I'm a few generations removed from that. But uh, I always think the, the huge sacrifice those people made to come here
0: yeah, I mean, if you say what, what would be different from family, then the, the, then the only difference for me is my sport is rugby. So to me, I, <laughs> I, I, I grew up in rugby, and, and I have to get my rugby dose once or twice a year. And fortunately, now I can get a little dose of that in America as well.
1: God, I used to travel. And I remember when I had to travel during football season, this was kind of when the internet didn't have that much good stuff and we didn't use it much. And I'd be in China, and I would just say, what time is it? Can, do I dare make a business call from about scores in the us about football that's right (laughs) anyway let's get back to the your career highlights when did you take this job and why did you take this job you obviously had opportunities you had a great career what what drew you to the port of virginia
0: so i took the job uh, commenced here in january of 21 so and made the tough time (laughs) yeah yeah a great time a good good well an interesting time to change roles and become the leader of a new business when you are all working hybrid or trying to protect everybody at that stage from before before uh you know really before vaccinations are out but i think the the, the attraction of the role what, why i wanted to to, to to take it on is you know having run terminal companies run shipping line businesses here you had an opportunity to say how do we build a gateway how do we build really look at a port and say how do we grow a logistics chain a gateway in, in, in virginia so not just the single economic interest of one party, but the opportunity to look at the whole. And so from when the ship arrives at the sea buoy, all the way through to when the package arrives on your doorstep, how do you build a distribution logistics chain and you know, work with all the other stakeholders and parties involved to build a bigger, better gateway? That's you know, it's somewhat unique. There aren't that many of those roles in North America where you can truly put that together. And being an operating port model, so the private sector experience I have of capital deployments and 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 growing businesses and maximizing earnings and couple that with how do you build a bigger better gateway logistics routing for the whole of for the whole of Eastern Europe
1: well that brings me to my next question and I think most I, I said to you before we hit record when people think about transportation logistics they think trucks and warehouses but we, we when you discount that most of the stuff or a lot of the stuff that we're using is from Europe or from Asia and other parts of the world if it didn't get to that port it doesn't get on a it doesn't get on rail it doesn't get on a truck and we don't see it so tell me that the port of Virginia is that a is that port owned by the state of Virginia is it owned by Northfolk who owns that port
0: so the facilities that we run at the port of Virginia are owned or long-term leased by, by the Virginia Port Authority, which is a political subdivision of the Commonwealth of Virginia. So they're state-owned and operated. You know, we are a state-owned body, and we have a private sector company, which we own, so a private sector sub, subsidiary, which operates them, on, operates them for us. So that company re, re, reports to me. So we call it you – know, we brand it really as the Virginia model. You know, with the Port Authority, so you know, we run the port as a responsible for the facilities – We operate it with a marine terminal operator. We operate those facilities. We employ, our subsidiary employs all the labor regarding to operate that port. All the assets, so all the capital assets required for running a port, the cranes, the yard equipment, et cetera, that's all with us. Technology, that's all ours. How we deploy those technologies, how we connect technologies together, right from how do we service the trucking community with technology to how do we service the import of the exporter through how do we deal with a direct customer, the ocean carriers. And we also um, operate own and operate our intermodal chassis fleet so for the port of virginia we own and operate uh, the chassis fleet for for our port operations so pulling all of that together is what we what we call the virginia model because it really makes a difference that did and the primary difference is while we compete with other ports up and down the coast we're not worried about individual economic interests in the harbor because It's not as if a ship moving from one terminal to another to create capacity in the harbor has different economic interests in play. It doesn't. It's all the same economic interest. Likewise, if you're owning and operating the chassis fleet, at some point there is a duty to have a chassis fleet available. So are you a for-profit utility or are you solely for profit? And right, We've taken the view that we're a for-profit utility, which is we're here to service the trade and make profit from it. The flip side is, we're not trying to say, "Hey, you know what? We might be at a peak usage period right now, so let's not reinvest because usage might come off." We're going to continue to reinvest. Yep. And by
1: the way, I I think people don't think about this too much. Is this is the lifeline to the world? I mean, for, without this international trade, we we none of us none of us have the lives that we have, and. It wasn't always this way. there was times when boats would be attacked. there was pirates that that was the way of the world for much of our existence. It's probably only since World War two, World War One that we've had these relatively open seas where you say, Yes, I can take that container ship from Europe to the u s and be safe <laughs> and so you mentioned the public private interest. I like that because again that you guys are. Both. I <laughs> mean, it sounds like it, it, you have to. You you mentioned the term stakeholders, and I think that's probably really appropriate in your space because it's so important. It's it's beyond and it's beyond just commercial interests.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I think the interesting thing on the shipping side is, having grown up in, in shipping, you know, I did my first fifteen years of my career in shipping. Is you know, we still come across every now and then the the idea of shared risk. So. You still see, you know, when the incident in the Suez Canal, for example, when the when it's blocked, all of a sudden we all know "Oh, there's now shared risk because, you know, whether we call it general average declarations or others in the shipping world, and it does come back to everybody to remind, yeah, you know, there's a different you know, maritime law is a very different area when it comes to where where are those risks, and yeah, you, know, you see, if you do still see it occasionally firsthand, but it's rare, pretty rare these days.
1: So I'm going to ask you some very basic questions. <laughs> so. I know like there's these large ports, Most, mostly when we, the last year or two, um, last three, probably, we've talked so much about Port of LA and Port of Long Beach. And those are obviously important ports. And I think a lot of the stuff that comes from Asia comes to the West Coast. And, and this is, again, my basic understanding. Please, please uh, add some some real knowledge to this. And a lot of the stuff that comes to the East Coast, is that coming from Europe usually?
0: No, our, our largest trading partner is China. Okay. So uh, and our fastest growing markets are Vietnam and India. So, And then we get the Europe, the North European trade, the Mediterranean trade, and the South American trades. So the East Coast has a more balanced portfolio than the West Coast because we're not just, you know, we're not Northeast Asian dominant, so dominant or solely Northeast Asia.
1: Northeast Asia is mostly China, right?
0: Mostly China, yes. China and Korea. Okay. So we, we've got Asia services through the Panama Canal, Asia services through the Suez Canal, North European services, Mediterranean services. East Coast South America, Central America, so if we think of shipping, we you know why is l a Long Beach been so much in in the headlines in the last year is real most of us live east of Mississippi, right? Yeah, I
1: think it's eighty percent of the population lives east of the Mississippi,
0: yeah, and Asia is the fact. Asia is the factory of the world. So we're the, we're the consumer, and the consumers sitting east of Mississippi. So it, the better route, the lower cost or more e- efficient route, is to come on an all, all water service through the Panama Canal or through the Suez Canal to come to an East Coast port. The quicker route is to go Asia West Coast and then use the rail networks. Whether you transload in right. California, right, is to use the rail networks to come through. So why did California? dominate the headlines. I think really for, for two or three reasons. The first is there was a big uptick in freight as a whole. So which which ports, which gateways could accommodate and manage their business such that they could accommodate significant growth in the you know, pandemic retail boom? And they clearly struggled, right? They, they, they clearly struggled to do that. And which ones are more complex in the sense that there are so many stakeholders that are getting the railroads with the terminals, with the chassis providers, with the warehousing and transload to all work together to actually achieve fluidity. You know, California had by far the most stakeholders involved, all of whom were individual economic interests. So therefore, it was set up in a very difficult situation. It's two port authorities in Los Angeles and Long Beach, Thirteen marine terminal operators, two railroads and some shortline railroads, multiple transload operators, multiple chassis providers. So it's a more complex network, and it was going to suffer more if an inland location struggled. So if the railroad struggled in in Chicago, that was going to move down the line and become a problem in Los Angeles to become a problem in the port to become a problem off the off the port and that's what we saw that that's really why i think you you've seen a you know over over the last decade you've seen a market share swing to the east coast which is going to continue probably for the next decade
1: yeah and so getting back to it you, so a lot of times stuff is coming from china so it goes to LA or long beach the port gets it out of the takes that container usually a container takes it out of the container uh, with the crane, they put it onto some tr- truck A drayage, gets taken to a, a railhead. Maybe the railhead's there, I'm not sure, <laughs> but it and it goes by rail to Chicago or somewhere somewhere out east of the east of the Mississippi, and then it goes from there, which is a lot of hands, obviously. But that's it's and what you're saying is those same boats can also go through the Panama Canal and come up you know, go around the United States and come to Virginia, which is where the pop, you guys are pretty close to the the East Coast population. And what's crazy is when you say 20% lives of the population is east of the Mississippi or west of the Mississippi, think how big Texas is and think how big California is. And then say, even with them, (laughs) only 20% lives east of the Mississippi. So when you come to Virginia or New York or some of these East Coast ports, that's where the population is. And that's where the stuff's going.
0: <laughs> yeah. So there are di- there are different ways for, for distri- distributing your goods. I mean, you can take a model that says we're going to produce in China. We're going to send the goods to Los Angeles, Long Beach, and then we're going to decide the final destination. So we'll deconsolidate the goods there, repackage it into domestic intermodal, and say, hey, we now want to send it to Dallas, or we now want to send it to Atlanta or Memphis or Chicago, because that's where the buyers are. Or... You can take the model that says we'll load up containers in, in Asia and we'll send them directly to the eastern eastern seaboard because we know they're going to be consumed on the eastern seaboard or in Columbus, Ohio or uh, Cleveland. So they know that you know. So part of it is that decision of how you want to move the goods and make your at what point in the supply chain you want to make your decision of the final destination. And part of it is geared. Part of it is geared to the cost of the costs and efficiencies. So I think. What has what's proven out over the last twelve months is with the with the delays on the west coast, it's actually been quicker to go through the east coast. So, and you know, what should be a seven day difference in favour of the west has actually swung to become an advantage of the east. Yeah, you know, that will reset over time as, as items normalise, but I don't think you'll normalise back to. So it will never go back to the market shares it had in the past.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 it's so interesting. Cause again, I, I think most of us in the transportation logistics space, we just look at, we pick up at a port, tell me the port you pick up at. <laughs> and, 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 right. and you don't recognize that probably that's the, maybe the most important decision is which port I'm going to. Moving it overseas for a month is a lot, a lot bigger decision than moving it by truck for two or three days. So, so you mentioned that again. this, this Well, by the way, I know I won't ask you about any of the labor stuff, but we all see in the news that we know there's negotiations. I don't know where they're at in LA and Long Beach, and but also we had concern with the labor negotiations with the rail. So I think a lot of people look and say, "Oh boy, what am I doing here? do Do I want do I want to take the chance?" But I think it's probably even bigger decisions than just labor, as people decide I want to move stuff, you know, to the East Coast. So besides you, who else is on the East Coast?
0: So, well, I think as you look at the range of ports on the East Coast, we because we've got obviously New York, New Jersey, we've got when you come down to us, you've got Philadelphia and Baltimore in between who operate in certain niche areas, and then you come to Charleston, Savannah, and before you get into the Florida base. The I'll ignore the Gulf for now, but obviously Houston is servicing Texas exceptionally, you know, and picking up a lot of cargo from California at, at the moment. But what you're seeing, you know, what you're seeing as a whole is the growth rates of. The eastern the eastern seaboard ports ourselves, New York, Savannah, have all been above the west coast ports in the last twelve months. So, you know, the fastest growing base has been on been on the east coast. And in in our, in our case, I think twenty twenty one we grew most of of everybody in percentage terms. And we're putting some, you know, we're, we're putting we've put some good growth so far this calendar year. On top of it. So yeah, in general, what you're seeing is continued, continued market share movement as a whole. Yep.
1: So getting back to your freight. So this, these, this stuff comes in, most of the stuff that comes to your port is in containers.
0: Yes. So we're largely, we're we're predominantly a container port.
1: Yep. And you mentioned uh, before we hit record, so you guys have spent some money on, on technology. and And so you guys are pretty efficient when it gets over
0: there, right? Yes. I mean, we're, we're by far the most modern port complex in America.
1: And what does that mean? Because, I, 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 again, I'm, I'm coming from a, 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 a neophyte's perspective here.
0: <laughs> no, not, not a problem. Firstly, you think through ships. They've all got bigger. So just about every port has had to build scale, build scale to handle large ships. Just like when, when the 747 started to come to airports, everybody had to build a bigger right, runway. Right. The Panama
1: Canal had to get bigger to take those super, what do they call them, Supermax.
0: Yeah, so you've had so you've had the ultra large. We call them ultra large container vessels. But you've had the bigger Panama Canal. And you've had every port on the eastern seaboard has had to adjust in some shape as the west coast ports have for big, stronger berths to accommodate the ships, taller cranes. Some places bigger, you know, raising bridges not for us, fortunately. And were but then you put, build on top of that the amount of cargo sorting um, that's needed. So who has put into place modern cranes, modern equipment, modern algorithms? In our case, semi-automated. So we've semi-automated our major container terminals. Two of two of our three container terminals are semi-automated, and we're going to build out our third one now.
1: But it's, what is that automated in what way? Like not, I'm
0: not following. So them. it means it means as we move containers around our, our yard, we're doing so within the stacking areas of the yard. We're doing so with unmanned equipment. Oh man! <laughs> so our horizontal transport was still we still manned. So, so we're not, yeah, and that works exceptionally well. But our yard equipment, so think through, think through a warehouse, and you know, if we were expecting to load ships that were going to call on us, you know, ship A, then ship B, ship C, but in today's world of ship delays elsewhere or ship delays coming out of Asia or Europe, you know, the ships don't turn up ABC. But the line, you know, four days out, you now know the lineup is BCA or something or some other rotation. You've got to rework that cargo in your yard. You've got to say, now I'm intending to load out a different amount of cargo or bring into the yard a different amount of cargo. We're able to position that using modern, you know, automated equipment. Likewise, for delivery to your truck. I mean, you said, oh, you come in our truck to pick up containers. Well, when you come in, you want to know, your truck driver needs to know that he's going to get in and out in 45 minutes. He needs to know how many turns a day he can get. We want to get that truck company three, four, five turns a day. So providing, combining that equipment with with appointment systems, if we know you're coming in at eight o'clock in the morning to pick up your container, we can make sure your container's in an available slot for pickup at eight o'clock. It's not you turn up and now you you say, oh, it's at the bottom of the stack. No, it's, it's at the top of the stack and it's ready to go. So consistency of service, certainty into the trucking community, make By running with appointment systems, you can see the demand curve that's coming at you each day, so you can plan accordingly, and you don't overload the system in any single point. So it just lends itself to consistency, certainty of service, and gives our operating team all the levers. They've got all the levers to keep fluidity going, but when there's more cargo than you might normally have, how do I flow it through the terminals? If there's less cargo, then you have how do I get how do I get certain cranes into maintenance into maintenance sectors so I can get them through maintenance, and most importantly, I think through the pandemic, you need to keep you know your our workforce has turned up every day, but as we've grown our business, we've been able to scale up as opposed to say we're going to you know we're going to run short of labor on a day in day out basis. We haven't we haven't had that scenario
1: yeah well i I will say this I, i'm I'm an automotive guy originally. I spent most of my career in automotive. I can tell you you're running a plant you, you want your inventory there and if somebody says this is the consistent predictable flow of of inventory and it takes an extra day, this one we can sometimes go faster, sometimes a little slower, but sometimes faster D- don't don't tell me about that because th- th- I want consistent flow. I don't care. If it takes 45 days instead of 44, and I know it's 45 is every single time going to be there, I'm happy. <laughs> so, so when you said consistent, I think this is, this is what the world runs on is inventory. You mentioned retailers you, you're saying, well, yeah, you'll just have empty shelves for a day or two. Well, it's millions of dollars across their stores. It's, it's not something we can live with having. And, and we have lived with it, obviously. We've all seen some empty shelves during COVID and even after COVID. You know, the aftershocks, but let's face it, that's no way to run a railroad or a port, I guess.
0: <laughs> I, I think we have to remember, ports are nodes. And we're here to move cargo from ships to trains and trucks and trucks and trains to ships. And the, in particularly, if you're an importer, you need to know when you going to have those goods available to sell. And in the case of if you were, because of lockdowns in Asia at the factories, if you needed to get your goods out of Asia, you needed to know when they got here that you have the opportunity to stage them if you needed to stage it through to your to your door. And that's partly why the supply chains had had issues is because, you know, a low inventory just-in-time network had to push, had to be changed to, we have to get it out of Asia while well before the risk of another lot you know, COVID lockdown happened. So... We were pushing more inventory through. Now, we've now got higher interest rates. So the cost of inventory is going up more. So the demand for certainty, the demand for consistency should get even greater. And I agree with you. It's a case of, you know, if you're selling 40 days and it's taking 48, that's no good. If you're selling 45 and it's 45, then everybody can plan. And I think that's what we're about here at this port, is to say, we'll give you the consistency of product. So you know you can get your trucks in and out. You know that your, how it's going to move from ship to rail. And on the export side is the flip side. You know, if you're loading up into our port, you know what your export receiving dates are because we tell you in advance, we don't change them based off ship schedules. And we know, so you know you can load at your warehouse, load at your agricultural plant, bring the goods in, and that we will then get them away on the ships as required. So I think that it sounds like blocking and tackling and, you know, the nuts and bolts of the business. But that's what it is. People need to know that their product is going to leave if it's an exporter and that they can bring it into the port and they need to know as an importer that they can have consistency of truck right. service.
1: And, and by the way, when we don't have that consistency, I'm, I, I haven't done it in a while, but when I was still doing automotive and we do like um, lean, you know, we'd have these big workshops, value stream mapping workshops. Normally we would circle warehouses and say, hey, we could close this warehouse. We're not gonna have that. That's just a buffer, right? We'll take that out, manage it. Warehouses are expensive. But for stuff from China, we would have warehouses because you don't want to have to support just in time, just for the reasons we've discussed. But that's an extra expense. And you just mentioned interest rates are going up, carrying extra inventory because I don't know what's happening upstream. We do it, but obviously it's a cost to everybody and we're trying to get more. And this is what this may be the great part of the technologies we have that let us plan better and have visibility and hopefully adjust because there's always going to be adjustments and collaboration in the process. So, uh, yeah, it's, it inventory is everything. I, I did a podcast not so long ago on that. And it's, I think it's missed sometimes that transportation costs might, you know, at least domestically might be less than the cost of inventory carrying costs in many cases. So we have to always think of that when we're, uh, when we're talking about, Oh, well, we'll just, we'll just carry more inventory. And that's what, by the way, that's what happens during the pandemic. You can't get it. You can't get it. You can't get it. And then as soon as you can't get it, you stock up, right? That's what the stores and and some of the retailers do. And then, and then as soon as it's a consistent flow again, you go, we got to have a sale to get rid of all this excess inventory.
0: (laughs) But I think what we have at the advantage here on, on the Eastern Sea, but particularly the advantage for us in Virginia is, you know, as we, you know, the, logistics warehousing industry, which is growing very strongly around us, uh, has been by far the strongest growth of, if you we look at employment for this region, Hampton Roads, the logistics industry has grown the most. So you look at that and you say, okay, we can bring containers in, we can deconsolidate them here, and then you can make your decisions as to, then you can make your decisions closer to the population base about where, you know, how are you going to handle that inventory? So I think it gives people that great consistency of service coming through the port and ease of decision-making as to how you then move that inventory on into your location. So it's the best of both worlds. It allows you to minimize your inventory costs and it gives you your lower transportation costs. Right.
1: As you guys get more efficient, you make it easier for the rest of us to do that plane. By the way, before we hit record, I mentioned that my friend Charlie Dehony over at Z box, he had posted that he had visited and got a tour of the port of Virginia. And I said, I said, Charlie, I you know it. I said, "Ooh, I would love to meet Stephen Edwards if you would, if you'd be kind enough to introduce me." He goes, oh, let me ask you, he said, you know And then he introduced us. Uh, thank and thank you, Charlie, for that. Talk about, I mean, for those of you who don't know, ZBox is well, maybe you know better. About can better explain what ZBox is up to.
0: Yeah, certainly. ZBox is based in Arlington, Virginia, um, and it's an incubator to allow you know, really people who are looking to take innovative ideas into the transportation chain. So there's a group of companies who are members to, to Zbox. Port of Virginia is one of them. by example, BNSF is another. you look at Road one intermodal logistics, they're another. Um, so you've got this great you know great system of big you know infrastructure intermodal logistics companies. and then you've got the entrepreneurship and the incubation hub that Charlie's running. Up in Arlington,
1: and that's right by where Amazon's HQ2 it's is. It's right, right next
0: to HQ2, so it's it's inside of all of that tech sector. And what it really allows is to start connecting people together to say, "Hey, we you know, come. We may have had we may have a problem that we've overcome, or somebody's got a great smart idea that they're bringing to the market, and we can go and test it, or they can come and, or we can say that's something we need help with." So, you know, as an example, we might need help with how do we build electrical infrastructure for EV trucks. Well, guess what? There's there's a company up there who knows what they're doing, and we can connect the dots, and we can get to work on what exactly would be needed for us to run a green supply chain between us in the port and Road 1's transload operation, which is 10 miles away from us. So, we can actually get to, we can connect ourselves and Road 1 and say, how do we put this together?
1: Yeah. Well, I love the idea that you guys are, well, first off, I always know the challenge when you're running a big organization, you want to innovate, but your, your charter is get more effective, get more efficient, get more effective. So it's always, innovation always has to be offline. It's just, you can't, and, and maybe the, I'm, I'm sure you're involved with that because you say, Hey, it's better off done in a small team over at Zbox. than I'm sure you guys are innovating day to day within your own organization, but for the, uh. Certain things is better offsite,
0: And I think also when you're running big industrial complexes like ports, you want something that works. So <laughs> you don't want to be the beta test site for everything. You need to come in and say, look, this is proven. We'll deploy it. This is in an incubation hub. Let it incubate. Let it cut to the point where it's ready for prime time so i think it's much better off done in a, in a laboratory type incubation setting before we bring it to prime time in the marketplace right
1: and they can always and they can always bring it over to you guys for a little sanity test and say Stephen, are we out of our minds
0: <laughs> and and they can make some mistakes along the way and it doesn't and it doesn't impact the wider business right right so I, I i
1: love the idea and again i think this is lost on some of us who are more focused on over the road is that There's innovation and technology and automation being employed at these ports, and they're getting better and better and better. And I love that. And again, I think also we lost, all we talked about for a year was Port of Long Beach, Port of LA, Port of Long Beach, Port of LA, as if, and and I'm not nothing against any of those guys, but it was not, they're not the only ports in town. And what what was happening quietly behind the scenes was people were saying, you know what, the East coast is not a bad option either. And so you guys continue to grow. And again, I imagine if I was bringing a lot of stuff in, I want the port that can be consistent, that is investing in technology, investing in the automation, concerning themselves with the next innovation without making me a beta test
0: <laughs> yeah we hope so too and that's really that's really you know, we always out in the marketplace talking to prospects and talking to people who are looking at their supply chains that's part of the message and of course the proof is in the eating of the pudding as always right so you know the, the, the pitch book to everybody is you know, come and have a look right C- come see it and and we can sit down and talk about how we can help um, and what we can do and you know, that gives everybody opportunity, and I think some people want to come and invest in logistics parks here. Some some folk are going to want to come and run better trucking operations. A lot of people are going to want to work their retail or agricultural inventory through us, and that's and that is you know, a good model. And I come back to that position we started at the start when we were talking about the Virginia model. At the end of the day, we're a utility to make it happen. So our role here is to make your is to make you know the importer and exporters. Life, you know, a little simpler, a little easier, and at the same time, service our ocean carriers really, really well.
1: Yep. So then, I do have another question. Again, I, I come at this from a very—I've—I've uh, I've gotten shipping containers, I've received shipping containers, I've even booked shipping containers, but I've never n- know all the details behind it. It's always felt like a magic happened somewhere. <laughs> it was where you were at. <laughs> so your customers, and again, I know you have multiple stakeholders or customers. The shipping companies, those big who own the big boats, they also own the containers. I think in most cases, right? Yes, yep. And so they come to you and say, "Hey, we need a port that can unload our stuff and store it and move it appropriately, efficiently, effectively." So those those shipping companies are your customers. How many of those shipping companies do you work with, or is it a is it a revolving cast?
0: <laughs> no, it's not, it, it, it's it's not that great a revolving cast because I think. It's every major shipping line that's calling in on the United States. They're, every one of those is a is a direct customer of ours, and you know, those those business relationships are making sure we understand their goals with what their ship deployments are going to be. That we understand what challenges they're facing in other locations, so that how do we react to that? Giving them, I mean, in the during the last twenty four months, it's been a lot of how do we give them optionality to change ship rotations at short notice or you know, bring in extra ships at short notice because of what they're facing elsewhere. I mean, just as an example, if if you know if there's rail cargo that they want to move through to the Midwest quicker, how do we help accommodate that? How do we work with the railroads to make sure it can move efficiently? If there are, you know, if there's a problem in another location, likewise, you know, if they've got a lot of empty containers to get back to Asia, how do we make sure that we can create the right load factor to get those containers out of here on an extra loader? And those are decisions because of the nature of what's happened during the pandemic in the last 24 months. A lot of those decisions have been made very quickly, very short term. So, but cumulatively, they add up to a lot of decisions that are made day in, day out. So I think our marine planning team working with each ocean carrier's marine team is constant communication and likewise constant communication with the railroads about where are they with their assets so i mean one example I, I would use with coordination not just with ocean cars with the railroads is for as an example if we know that a railroad has got a congestion problem in kansas city we can stage their kansas city containers through here for a week as long as they turn around and say but you can you can load up a few more to right. columbus ohio so we stay fluid and that really really helps us keep the whole gateway fluid well I, I,
1: we just get, we just had uh, hurricane ian roll through and uh, uh did that hit uh Northfolk at all
0: it did because while we were on the fringes we had to shut ship transits in and out of the harbor and we've probably um ship transits in and out of the harbor have been shut for just opened up this morning um because of the second storm system post Ian. so as i talked to you now that was the situation so we were closed our ship transits in and out were shut down for a good two days now we carried on with ships inside the harbor, but we obviously lost a lot of transits in and out. So there'll be some catch up. There'll be the ports to the south of us had the same situation. Savannah and Charleston were all. So the three of us all went through the same storm system. All of us were fortunate to have no damage. So we're not in the position Florida's in, thank goodness. So, but yes. Yeah, so we, the logistics chain will catch up now. Those ships will now kind of come back in, and we'll get back into rhythm, and we'll we'll play catch up during the first week of October. So,
1: is, is storms like that and other situations like the big jam up we had in LA and Long Beach, do you guys in the ports? Do you guys ever c- collaborate with the other port
0: operators? We're, we're very aware, day in day out, operations. There's there's healthy competition of Do you want cargo to come through New York or Norfolk or Savannah? Of course, there's that healthy competition. There's also operational reality, which is day in, day out, ships are moving up and down the coast. Ships are declaring their departure times from ports, which then impact labor ordering at the next port. So the the exchange of files between port operators as the port leaves a terminal in New York, as a ship leaves a terminal in New York, it's telling us what's on board for us to then know what the profile of the ship is before it comes to us. And vice versa, a ship going from us to them. So that operational cooperation is going on all the time, and I think people have a very you know everybody will work with everybody in the maritime industry uh, we we said at the start of the of this we thought, well there are certain shared risks At the end of the day we all want the east coast to perform well we all want we all want the best outcome uh, for the transportation chain so we want to be the winner, but we want the but we all know we've for us all to win, all, floats, all boats float on a rising tide, so we better cooperate.
1: Yeah, that's literally for you guys, right? <laughs> yep. I want to wrap this bad boy up because I know I'm going to lose you at the top of the hour. What's, what's next, in answer in any order, what's next for you? What's next for the Port of Virginia? And what's next for this, the overall shipping and, I guess, containerized rate.
0: So, Well, I think that the, the big challenge of what, what's next, so I, I said to you when I took this role, it was largely to say, let's go build a gateway. And very much, that's what's next for me. Let's build this gateway. Let's really build Virginia and make it the best logistics hub in North America. That's what I see as, as the role here. And that's not a single year journey. That's That takes time. Um, but we're well on track. And I think so to make us you know, the, the best gateway, whatever we you could define by best, that would be another conversation. But make this the best location for people to want to do their business and locate their industry. Into this area to do their business. I think the, you know, that's what's like. in terms of our industry, there's no doubt that the order book of ships in the next few years tells everybody that there's plenty of ships being built, which means ships are going to get bigger and supply chain and the infrastructure around that has to be built to really work that well. So we've got a really big infrastructure program on. We've got dredging and widening of channels. We've got a rail yard being built, brand new uh, modern terminal to build. So I think when we look at that, we've got huge infrastructure being built and we're going to continue to deploy smart technologies and smart you know, logistics parks in this area to really build a great gateway. So we've st- we've, we were on track on that. Now we've got to really affect it in the next five years.
1: Excellent. Excellent. So before you go, I want to ask a few things. So who's your sweet spot? Who, who do you work with? I mean, who's, who do you serve? I, I think I know, but I want to hear you say it one more time before you go.
0: <laughs> I think we, we can look at this and say, we've got customers in many different ways. The ocean carriers are a direct customer. At the importers and exporters uh, and the third-party logistics companies, that builds the infrastructure. So that's who we work with to build the infrastructure, to build the freight. The ocean carriers are who we then build with to provide that great service.
1: Excellent. Excellent. So what conferences do you guys attend?
0: Well, for us in in conferences, we've just got back. Last week, I was up in Chicago, first of all, for the JOC Inland Conference. Then here in home base Norfolk, we had a Virginia Maritime International Symposium. We will be at the TPM Conference out out on the West Coast. We will go go to RELA as well uh, next year. So... And then we'll attend retail federations and agricultural conferences as well.
1: You guys will be everywhere, it sounds like.
0: (laughs) We will. We'll be out talking to the people we want to do business with.
1: Well, I really appreciate you taking the time. What I'll do is I'll put a link to your LinkedIn profile and a link to anything else your marketing team gives me. But I I really appreciate you taking the time. It was a real education. I just feel like this is so overlooked when people talk about transportation logistics. I don't think they ever think about how important the ports are. They think of these big container ships like they just somehow, you know, land on our shores and easily uh, disembark, but it doesn't work that
0: way. That's correct. And I think as everybody, you know, remind everybody when they point and click and make their next e-commerce order, it came on a ship. Yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time, Stephen. Thank you, Joe. Yep. And thank all of you for listening to my podcast. Your support's very much appreciated. Until next time, Onward and Upward.